The final weeks before election day are always such a slog. The airwaves are flooded with negative political ads. You probably have a friend or family member who is the kind of hyper-partisan who decks out their entire lawn with campaign signs. And when it comes time to vote, you feel stuck either voting for a candidate you actually like, but who stands zero chance of winning, or you vote for whichever of the two red or blue shaded options that seems somewhat less reprehensible than the other. Well, I guess you do get to wear a sticker for the rest of the day and feel vaguely superior to those who aren't. You did your wearisome, soul-sucking civic duty yet again. Yay. Today on Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the way we can create a better future through tech and innovation, we're going to ask, does it really have to be this way? How did we get to such a sorry state in American politics, and is there anything we can do about it? After all, the ways we organize human behavior are forms of technology. Just as the idea of the assembly line transformed global industry, the ways we organize our election process and government representation, it can have a transformative and salutary effect. And the good news is that there are reforms that could break the power of the two-party duopoly, disincentivize negative campaigning, and make our politicians more accountable and closer to the electorate. But we need to start by diagnosing our national political sickness. To that end, I called up Lee Drutman, a political scientist and senior fellow at the New America Think Tank. Lee, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Paul. Lee is also the author of a new book titled Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. I'm going to guess that just based on that title, you know, Doom Loop, that you're not feeling real optimistic right now. Yeah, it's kind of a dead giveaway. Uh, (laughs) Things are are looking pretty bad here um, in American politics. The level of uh, partisan hatred is at a really dangerous point. Uh, The sort of shared sense that if the other party wins, it's going to be somehow illegitimate. Uh, uh, I mean, these are are warning lights and alarm bells that uh, scholars of democracy uh, would say uh, make it very difficult to continue this uh, experiment in self-government. Another term for the extreme partisanship we see in American politics is party polarization, like how a magnet has two poles that either repel or attract a piece of metal. Most of us get sorted into either Democrats or Republicans, whether or not we really like either party, but we feel like we have to vote for our party because every election we're told that this is the last election. The other side wins, so you know the, it's the end of America as we know it. So we vote out of fear of the other guy rather than out of love for ours. So I put the question to Lee, how do we get here? So I'll put it to you. Why are we so much more polarized in our party politics today and just so quick to reflexively vote for our tribe and equally quick to vilify the other? Well, it's a complicated question uh, that is really the emergence of several trends that have happened over the last several decades. So, you know, if we go back to the 1960s, um, and, you know, 1960 is a useful jumping off point, which there, there really wasn't a whole lot of difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, there was 
Nixon versus Kennedy, it was a very close debate. But, you know, if you if you walk, go back and watch those debates, which are actually fascinating to watch in the mm-hmm. current context, you know, I mean, you see that they're arguing about pretty minor points about like farm policy. Uh, you know, there, there's, <laughs> you know there, there's not a ton of disagreement between the Democratic and the Republican parties. And you know, that's because the parties at national level were really these loose overlapping coalitions. And the, the real action was with state and local parties. And politics was mostly local. Uh, and you know, the, the party system was kind of built around a particular post-war consensus. And you know, importantly, that, that consensus was about leaving uh, issues of uh, of race and race relations largely to the states. Now, uh, that was not sustainable for, for I think, what re- reasons that should be obvious. Uh, and you know, as the federal government took on a more uh, important role in uh, civil rights and uh, many other cultural issues, uh, politics became more and more national, and the parties began to take more distinct stances on these cultural and social uh, and uh, racial identity issues. And so you had this kind of great sorting of American politics where liberal Republicans, largely from the Northeast and some of the big cities and the coast, started to become Democrats. uh, And, you know, basically liberal Republicans kind of went extinct. I guess Susan Collins might be the the last (laughs) of that generation and she may no longer be in office uh, very soon. and you know, uh, same with conservative Democrats who used to be uh, common in the South and in the rural parts of the country who had you know, conservative cultural values, although aligned more with Democrats on economic issues. Uh, and so you, you, those were the kind of groups that fostered broad bipartisan compromise, but also kind of muddied the national images of the party. Uh, mm. Also had had an increasing centralization of party finances and, and nationalization of the elections as both parties tried to make the elections more about who has control of Congress uh, rather than uh, the, you know, than and kind of uh, working, you know, being willing to work with the other party. The idea was that you want to make sure that the other party is seen as unacceptable and your party is the only party that can, you know, that is the true party of of America, basically. Uh, and, and there were a lot of incredibly close elections during this period of time. We've kind of gone in this, this era of pendulum politics from, you know, unified government to divided government to unified government for the other party. And both sides are really trying to get this slim, elusive, narrow majority, both because they think if the others, you know, they want to be able to impose a very strong version of their preferred uh, policy agenda. And, and perhaps mm-hmm. more to the point, they think that if the other side gets control, that, that that will be the end of America or the end of democracy. So we're in this high stakes politics over increasingly national issues that are really zero some identity cultural issues. And this is a process that has really played out over the last six decades. And as I argue in my book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, we actually are a genuine two-party democracy for the first time uh, in really just in the last decade, in the sense of having mm. two truly distinct national parties, and I know a lot of folks will say, "Well, well, what's this? What's this? What's this crazy guy talking about? Haven't we always had a two-party system?" Uh, and yes, that, that's true in name, but really, until very recently, the national parties were these just kind of catch-all brands that didn't really have any meaningful, dis- you know, any strong distinction. Uh, 
and there were, it was these overlapping coalitions. It was really like we had a multi-party system within the two-party system, and it made our institutions, which demand tremendous compromise and patience and deliberation, actually work okay. Not necessarily great, but okay because the the, the I mean, basically, if you go back to uh, Madison's vision, it's a it's a vision in which there's no dominant faction and you mm. work out compromises that are broadly legitimate. Now, the uh, problem with uh, two parties is that you wind up with this very binary approach to politics in which uh, one side is always trying to get this m majority. And also when you split people into two groups, and this is a, a something that emerges out of many group psychology and social psychology experiments is that people start really disliking the other group. And the more you separate the groups, and we are seeing how that happens right now with one party for rural America and one party for urban cosmopolitan America, uh, you know, the, the more distant the other party seems and the high, higher the stakes for power, the, the more you get hatred. Now, what's interesting about these social psychology experiments is that they only work for two groups. Uh, if you add three, break people into three or four groups and the, you know, some people are allies and some people are enemies on different issues, there, there's not that level of hatred. There's not that level of animosity. You know, our, our brains are really hardwired for this us versus them, good versus evil, you know, Manichaean kind of thinking about the world. And what that does is it really oversimplifies things and it makes it hard for us to incorporate new information that doesn't fit neatly in that schema, which, you know, frankly, just makes us all a lot dumber. And I think one way of uh, an alternate way of thinking about politics that I think is not familiar to Americans in the two party system, but you know, was very in tune with how Madison was thinking about it and how you know people in most democracies think about it is that there, there is you know on issues there might be majorities, uh, but you know the, the coalitions there's no permanent there's no permanent majority coalition. Uh, there's just a bunch of people working out. Uh, compromises on particular issues and trying to build a winning coalition that in, that is inclusive and sustainable. It's not somebody trying to ram down some policy, uh, you know, in some limited window in which they have power. This party duopoly we found ourselves trapped in is incredibly durable, despite the fact that over 60% of voters wish they could vote for a viable third option. Despite our weariness, though, party affiliation is one of the stickiest identities that we have. In fact, sociologists have found that parents, when asked who they would have the hardest time seeing their kids marry, don't report a different religion or race but someone with a different party affiliation. That's messed up. <laughs> the good news is that I have three major reforms to tell you about today, each of which could play a role in saving American democracy from its demons. The first is a better method of selecting people to represent us in legislatures. It's called proportional representation, and it's something that Lee has spent a lot of time thinking about. The simple idea is that rather than having a single district that, that picks only one representative. You have larger districts that pick multiple representatives, or in some cases, even the entire country is one electoral district, which is the case in the Netherlands. Uh, and then 
candidates or parties are elected in proportion to their vote share, district-wide or countrywide in some cases. And there are many different versions of proportional representation uh, that vary district magnitude, vary vote formulas. Uh, The version of proportional representation that I recommend in my book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, and and many others think would be most appropriate for the United States is a system that's been used for about 100 years in Ireland. It's been used in Australia. It continues to be used and people like it there, uh, is a system of ranked choice voting with uh, multi-member districts for the House. Now, why don't we have multi-party politics in the U.S. already, you might be asking? It's because we stuck with an outdated voting system long after other countries turned to alternative methods. What we have is called first-past-the-post voting, where the first candidate to get a majority of the vote, or, or at least a sufficiently large plurality, wins all the cookies. There's nothing proportional about the outcome at all on the district level. The person that half the voters, give or take, selects represents 100% of the district. But having multi-member districts allows the preferences of the entire electorate to have a clearer impact. Even political minorities get some representation and don't have to feel as perpetually marginalized and alienated from the political process. I asked Lee for a specific example of how a multi-member district might work. Let's go down to Massachusetts, which actually is voting on ranked choice voting. They have nine congressional districts. Massachusetts is is a pretty solidly Democratic state, uh, but, you know, maybe about a third of people in Massachusetts vote for Republicans. The Massachusetts congressional delegation is nine Democrats. Now, what about that third of people who vote for Republicans? They, They don't get to elect any representative. But if you imagine you had Massachusetts, instead of as nine separate congressional districts, as one big congressional district, you know, you probably have, uh, you know, third of the representatives would everybody would vote for, you know, for one representative and then they could do a ranked choice ballot there. Uh, and then the top nine finishers after after vote transfers would go to Congress. So what you'd probably wind up with is, you know, six Democrats and three Republicans, you know, in, in our current party system. But, you know, maybe you'd wind up with one libertarian uh yeah, like a like a Bill Weld, uh, who could you know who who got maybe like you know twelve percent of the vote statewide or fifteen percent of the vote statewide. Uh, you'd wind up with some different types of Democrats, some moderate Democrats, some more socialist Democrats. Maybe you'd wind up with you know who who knows you know, but you'd get you'd get more diversity. And here's the other thing that every voter in the state of Massachusetts would have their vote count. So right now, mo- I think almost all of those districts are basically safe Democratic districts. Uh, so voters live in those districts; their votes don't really count uh, because they don't, you know, nobody's really worried about them unless they're in, happen to be voting in a primary. You know, in which case then it's a com- competition for who can who can be the most partisan Democrat, uh, particularly a, a far left partisan Democrat. And I, I just think that's a fairer system. Everybody's vote counts equally. Voters are represented in proportion to uh, to their, their share of the state population. And you know, it, it creates more parties and it creates more d- diversity of ideas. This is a pluralistic country. 
And Democrats and Republicans don't have a monopoly on good ideas. And in fact, the, the system almost encourages them not to develop new ideas because they have to maintain this complicated coalition of all these groups and all this big tent. And the way they do that is not by really developing new policy ideas as much as bashing the other party. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a system designed to make people disenchanted and disappointed right now. And you know, it's no wonder so many people feel that way. And, and our country is just, you know, really declining in so many ways. The benefits of proportional representation go beyond breaking the two-party duopoly. Places that have gone to multi-member districts also tend to have less negative campaigning and more diversity in outcome. Yeah, well, when you're in a proportional system, you're you're just going to wind up with more diverse candidates. That, you know, more diversity of background, more diversity of of ethnicity, more diversity of ideas. Uh, you know, because you don't have to get a plurality in a single district in order to win. You know, it's it's not it's you know if you take libertarians, you know, uh, or you know any other. Uh, you know, group that doesn't fit in the two party system, you know, they're they're not concentrated in a single district because districts geom- geography, you know, is increasingly arbitrary to our political interests in the in the twenty first century. Uh, but they're you know they're they're spread out more. So the way to have representation is to have much larger uh, districts in which you know you can be you know fifteen percent of a much larger district. Uh, and then you can elect candidate of, of choice. And, you know, I, I think the, the other point you, you raised about negative campaigning is you know, negative campaigning backfires. Uh, and, you know, we know that there's a backfire effect, but, you know, in the two party system, the, the sense is that it's even worse for your opponents. So, you know, <laughs> so it's okay. But in a multi party system, uh, you know, you get the backfire and it's not clear it could benefit somebody else. You know, if you're trying to take out one person, uh, you know, it's not clear that you're going to get their support, especially if you're the one doing the negative campaigning, because people actually don't like the negative campaigning all that much. Uh, so it just just doesn't work the same way. Also, you know, if you're going to be if, if a party is going to be in a governing coalition uh, with another party, then. You know, one, you don't want to you know, poison the well before the election, but also like if you've been in coalition with a different party, like it's harder to say that this party is super dangerous uh, because, well, then why did you work with them? Mm. And, you know, that that's that logic also applies to how the campaigns operate right now, which is that Democrats can't work with Republicans because Democrats want to be able to say that Republicans are super dangerous and have all the wrong ideas. And if a Democrat works with a Republican, that validates that Republicans might have some decent ideas Mm. because otherwise, why would you work with them and, and vice versa? Doesn't that sound refreshing? Imagine having a system that discouraged the demonization of other political parties and encouraged consensus building. Our second reform idea could yield similar results, but rather than tweaking representation, it tweaks the ballot. It's something called ranked choice voting. I asked Lee to explain what that is. Uh, For our listeners who aren't already familiar with ranked choice voting, we've dropped the term a couple of times here. 
what is that? Like, what does it look like when I go to the polls in November? What would a ranked choice ballot look like? Well, you're going to see the same list of candidates that you might normally see, but rather than just picking one, you can rank those candidates in terms of, of preference. So what that means practically is if you're a libertarian, you can vote for the libertarian candidate as your first choice and then acknowledging that the libertarian candidate might not win, you know, maybe you, you know, you say, okay, well, who who would be my second choice? Who's my backup vote if that candidate is, you know, only going to get 4% of the first round preferences and maybe it's the Republican, maybe it's the Democrat, maybe it's another uh, party, you know, in practicality as ranked choice voting catches on, there will be more parties because, you know, the reason that a lot of uh, third parties avoid, uh, you know, spending money on on running candidates is because they know that it's wasted money. The candidate is not going to win, uh, and you know, frankly, it's why a lot of candidates who are ambitious uh, don't choose to run on third party labels because they know they're not going to win. So, you know, but but practically from the voter experience, it means that you're going to have you're going to get to to register a preference an or rank rank your your all, all the candidates in order of preference. Um, and, you know, you know that your vote will count even if your preferred candidate doesn't do so well. So you don't feel like you're I mean, I think right now a lot of folks voters won't vote for third parties because they feel like they're throwing their vote away. And so they have to vote strategically out of and often out of hate and fear rather than out of any kind of actual affection for the person they vote for. Right. So, you know, what, you know, a lot of folks who are libertarians say, well, the true support for libertarianism would be higher if people, you know, people actually could vote for a libertarian candidate without throwing their vote away. So we we would learn that if if we had a form of frank choice voting. Mm. And again, it's not just a libertarian thing. It'd be true for, you know, socialist parties and right. and, yeah, and so exactly. on as well. Any, any kind of third party. Um, so then you you so you rank your preferences. Like you know, you can have your third party at the top, and then okay, well, I guess once if they're not going to win, probably. So my second choice is fill in the blank, Dem or Republican. Um, what then do they do at the end of election day to with those preferences? So the candidates are eliminated from the from the bottom up. So you take the first round, you know, say there's four can you know, say say we're running the 2016 presidential election as a as a ranked choice voting election. So, you know, first round Hillary I forget the exact thing. It's like Hillary Clinton was was at 48%, Trump was at 46%, you know, Gary Johnson was at 4%, Jill Jill Stein was at 2%. Um, so, you know, you'd get, you'd say like, all right, so Jill Stein is, is last place finisher. So she's eliminated, but her votes aren't thrown out. They're transferred to the second choice. So say, you know, half of her, you know, supporters, you know, so we have, we're dealing with 2%. So say like 1.5% go to Hillary, um, and 0.5 go to Gary Johnson, um, so now Hillary's at 49.5%. This is the single version of ranked choice voting. She doesn't have a majority yet. Um, then Gary Johnson's, you know, votes are, he's eliminated. So his his supporters say they split half between Trump and Clinton. Uh, you know, Clinton gets over the top. She's got more than 51%. She wins. Now, I, I recognize that that's not, you know, sure. we have or the... Just, yeah. the yeah. 
this is we and we'd have to filter this through the electoral college. Um, but as a as a simple, you know, understanding that's how it works is candidates are eliminated from the bottom up and their votes are redistributed to their second or in some cases third preferences if their votes if if a if it's been transferred multiple times. But in the in the the situation we posited in 2016, yes. you don't have a president who wins with 46% of the right. of the vote. Right. Although you um, also want to eliminate the electoral college to ensure that. Yeah, that's another wrinkle. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. complicated. But, but but in theory, yes. Okay, now I'm going to make all of you insanely jealous. There is a place in the United States where ranked choice voting already exists on the federal level. And that glorious place is my home state, Maine. That's right, baby. We got lighthouses, we got lobsters, and we got ranked choice voting. It was actually tried for the first time in 2018 when the Republican congressional candidate, a fellow named Bruce Poliquin, played partisan politics as usual, while the Democratic candidate, Jared Golden, he appealed to third-party and independent voters. He would basically go around and say, look, I agree with you on this and this. Uh, could I have your second or third place vote? And while Poliquin won on the first ballot, he got way fewer second and third place votes than Golden, giving the Democrat, Golden, the final victory. In other words, ranked choice voting empowered third-party voters, punished overly negative campaigning, and resulted in the win for the person most widely palatable to voters in the district. Let's get back to Lee. I think about the process uh, by which we do campaigning and governing. And you know, so what it means is that candidates are, are campaigning differently and they're and they're bargaining differently. You know, mm. I, I the, the you know the Republican Bruce Polinquin who who lost in the second congressional district of Maine you know, I mean in many ways it's it's his own damn fault because he, he could have campaigned in a in a in a way that tried to to build broader support you know instead he or his campaign consultants ran the same divisive partisan playbook of of plurality voting and and he lost and you know. Also had Susan Collins in Maine decided that, you know, she's going to run as an independent and benefit from ranked choice voting. I, I think she'd be in a much better position now. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. said she ran, she's running as a Republican. And as a result, it's very hard for her to distance herself from Trump. And, and she's going to lose uh, probably mm -hmm. as a result. So it, it's not, you know, I, I, I tend to, you know, if it, as, you know, somebody who's who's studied political science and public opinion, you know, I tend to be somewhat skeptical that that a lot of public preferences are, you know, stable or independent, uh, rather than that they reflect, uh, to, to a large extent, what what media and partisan elites tell them that they should care about. And if uh, campaigns are telling voters that they should be very afraid of the other party, and, and this is an incredibly high stakes election, you know, that's what voters will uh, say. But, you know, I mean, voters have weaker preferences in terms of their own interests um, that are not often well reflected or translated into political parties. And I think mm. in, a, in, a, in a different political system, you'd see those voter th those interests better translated into political parties because there'd be more political parties to represent those interests. So, you know, I, I think sometimes it's easy to think in terms of the will of the people or, you know, Democrats as a majority or Republicans as a majority. But, you know, those are 
those are overly simplified crystallizations of a particular moment. And to me, the whole aspect of self-governance and democracy is that those uh, th those ideas should be fluid. And what matters is not a narrow majority or, you know, or, or one party winning. What matters is a sort of ongoing deliberative pluralistic process where, you know, we build uh, legitimate policy uh, that reflects a, a broader set of compromises in which, which nobody really gets their way. And you know, the system should be working if mm. nobody gets their preferred outcome, but the outcome kind of reflects a, a broader compromise position. So if we combine ranked choice voting with proportional representation, we really will start to put a dent in hyperpolarization and just the general idiocy which defines our politics today. But there's another way that we could boost those gains. If I say in our you know current political context, the words pack the and ask you to fill in the blank, you might answer Supreme Court. And that's all the rage or horror at the moment, depending on your political priors. But I want to live in a world where the first thing that pops into all of our heads when we say those words is pack the house, as in House of Representatives. The size of the House of Representatives used to grow constantly as the population grew. This was the norm from 1789 to the 1920s. And then we just stopped doing it. And the ever-growing ratio of constituents to members of Congress has contributed to our political rot. So I decided to talk with Dan Bowen, a political scientist at the College of New Jersey who specializes in, among other things, voter behavior, congressional districting. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Paul. I'm so glad to be here. Now, in my notes, I titled this group of questions uh, in the spirit of the rent is too damn high party, but instead it's Congress is too damn small. Now, this is going to come up as a bit of a shock to folks. I mean, it's not like there's some huge public demand for more of what is consistently ranked as one of the least popular institutions in America. I mean, you ask man on the street, do you like Congress? And there's, you know, maybe a few percentage points of people who will say, yes, Congress is great. So we're saying for more members of Congress, why do you think that 435 voting members of the House of Representatives are too few? Yeah, well, um, we need more politicians, right? It's a sell that everybody is quick to uh, jump on, of course. <laughs> no, it's it's kind of a hard sell. I, I can I can get that. But, um, you know, our 435 members of the U.S. House is entirely arbitrary. That that number, that, that the U.S. House of Represent Representatives was never designed to be a fixed number. Uh, certainly, Madison uh, never uh, planned it that way, and in fact argues in the Federalist Papers that the um, size of the House would continue to grow as the population grew. grew. Mm. In fact, the original uh, uh, founding documents, uh, you know, sort of set the expectation that we would hold a ratio of citizens to to representatives constant, right, uh, throughout mm -hmm. time, and, and we generally did this up until the early 20th century. So after Arizona and New Mexico gets added as states, uh, is the last time that we change the size of the House at 435 members. What ends up happening is reapportionment gets 
too contentious as folks move out of the farms and move into the cities and you start to get swings in political power um, away from uh, rural states and into uh, urban states. And they, they stop passing apportionment bills. Uh, and the compromise was to just reapportion the existing seats. The downside to this current plan of reapportionment is that our district sizes are growing dramatically as the population has grown in the United States. So what are we talking about on the scale here? So what was it, you know, pre 20th century, you know, the ratio? What is it on average today? Today, it's over 700,000 persons per district. Wow. Right. So very, very large seats. What was it back in the, you know, late 1800s, um, early 1900s? I don't have the, the data in front of me, but uh, somewhere in 200,000 people per district, okay. wow. right? Wow. Um, at, the, mm-hmm. at the founding, we're talking about 30,000 people per district. Mm. Of course, it's difficult to sort of say what, what is the exact right amount right, of people uh, in a district. Um, that, that's a difficult question to answer. But I think, I think we could make the argument that there'd be some positive consequences if we had more members uh, in Congress and fewer uh, citizens lumped together in each district. For example, members wouldn't have to raise as much money, wouldn't have to do as much fundraising mm-hmm. because they don't have to campaign in a large district of 700,000, 800,000 people. That's one. Um, another possibility is that uh, there might be other types of campaigning activities that members could do. They could actually walk around neighborhoods and talk to voters mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. grassroots mobilization is more effective when you have fewer people per district. Um, uh, districts, because they'd be smaller, there would be a greater chance of any sort of district interests. Uh, maybe it's the, the, the local factory, or maybe it's the, um, you know, higher ed sector in the college, college town community, or maybe it's a, a racial or ethnic group, right? We'll have a, a larger chance of being a majority inside of a smaller district. When we create very large districts, we end up pulling all these districts toward the mean of uh, of the country, right? They, they, they're more reflective of the entire nation and less of the variety of, of life that is in the United States. No, that makes sense. It's There has a kind of a, a mean, a, a lowest common denominator effect, right? So that the majority groups tend to end up being overrepresentative while minority groups are underrepresented as a result. I think this relates to uh, political polarization as well, because what we're doing here when we're pulling pulling these districts towards the mean, we're also pour, pulling them toward the, the means of the parties, right? So, um, mm. you know, you might have moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats in moderate Democrats in the South or moderate Republicans in the Northeast, for example, who might provide a different sort of representation of party because their, their party coalitions in those areas look different, right? In the Northeast, maybe um, uh, the, the, the Republican uh, coalition is more secular, right, than in the South. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, maybe the Democratic coalition in a, in, a, in a Southern congressional district is more um, socially conservative. Uh, certainly, that's probably true in um, majority minority districts in the South. So if we have a smaller district, perhaps some of those differences in the party groups can actually impact voting behavior of, of members of Congress. 
in a way that they don't do now. They, they can't now, right? When, when uh, they're so large and those interesting differences get um, averaged across uh, a large space. I mean, it makes sense in a, in, in kind of a, a pragmatic uh, experiential way. I mean, I think uh, lots of our listeners who live in smaller towns well, when they think of local government officials, they might actually have some sort of personal relationship with them, or at least have the prospect of having a personal relationship with them. You might know the mayor of your town of 50,000, 100,000 people, um, because at some point in time, they came to a ribbon cutting ceremony at your business, or you just saw them at a roundtable event, or, or whatever. You actually, you have a prospect of knowing them and uh, feeling heard by them. Whereas a member of Congress, you know, well, maybe at some big event, some rally that you went to, you might have been in the audience as you saw them up on the stage. I mean, they're more distant. So if they represented a smaller community, they would be a bit more like uh, closer to that scale of the, 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 the town mayor in terms of your access to them. Um, and I imagine that when they're large and distant, when it's large districts and they're often another, you know, their district is, uh, includes a dozen towns the size of your town. Uh, their headquarters isn't even in their, t- your, their, you know, their campaign headquarters isn't even in your town. Well, th- that means the people who have proximity to them are not as much the locals as well, you know, the lobbying by corporations and and other vested interests. Um, I mean, is that true? Does that show up in the data that district size affects um, citizen access? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, some of this is difficult because of the availability of survey questions. But uh, one uh, project that I'm working on, um, I analyzed the 2008 National Annenberg Election Study, and um, this is actually at the state legislative level, not even at the congressional district level. But they, mm-hmm. they ask questions about, um, do you know, do you personally know your representative in the state legislature? And then they clarified mm-hmm. it by saying, as in, if you were to call them, would they recognize you or your name? Right? So there's like a <laughs> personal relationship with this member. Um, I like that. And it's a very unique question. And uh, the, the, by far the most important determinant of this sort of a personal relationship with elected representative uh, was the size of the lower chamber districts in the state legislature, right? Large districts, you know, 5% or fewer uh, uh, of, of the survey responses, respondents said that they had that kind of relationship with their representative so that the representative knew them and the, the, resp- the respondent um, felt like or, or thought actually recognized the fact that the representative knew them, knew who they were. But um, you're getting over 20% uh, of respondents in, lar- uh, in, in, in the states with the smallest legislative districts felt that way. So again, um, you know, we have a very large country, right? So the, the reform that, that, you know, you, we would be considering here would be expanding the size of the U.S. House, um, the idea of getting back to 50,000 person districts is probably unrealistic. Um, but we certainly could change the size of the house to get to maybe 350,000 people instead of 700,000. Um, and if population size continues to grow, this problem isn't going to go away, right? It's going to continue to get worse over time. The 
problem, however, with the idea of expanding the House of Representatives is that doing so requires the support of the House of Representatives. And we're asking them to dilute their own political power. Each individual House member right now, while their vote goes from being worth 1 435th of the power of the House. And if we doubled the size of the House, it's now worth 1 870th of that power, or half as much. So why would Congress ever agree to voluntarily give up that power? I put the question to Dan. I think it really makes sense why the House has been frozen since uh, really the 1929 um, uh, changes to the Reapportionment Act. Um, once that sort of that change was uh, implemented and reapportionment happened automatically, um, it, it really was been very difficult to change uh, mm. because, of course, exactly like you said, Paul the current members would be facing um, a decrease in power. So why would they, why would they do that? You know, I think, I think there are a couple of potential windows for making that change. One would be, um, you know, every, every, after every decennial census, we have, we have reapportionment and states lose, right? States, states lose Mm -hmm. representatives. They get reapportioned over to some other growing state. And I, I could imagine um, that such disruption, you know, it always leads to to losers, right, uh, across state lines. And I can mm-hmm. sort of imagine that perhaps there could be a coalition that could be built of, of, of um, states, you know, folks from states who are losing representation and power in Congress. And that also mm-hmm. affects not just – so if I'm, I'm from New York, um, if I'm from New York and I lose a representative, it doesn't just impact me. It impacts all members in New York. Right, because that means that we're going to redraw the lines of everybody, um, and and it's going to be a shock to the system, right? So it's going to be more change than we we would have needed to have otherwise, uh, because we lost that that uh, one or two uh, members. So there could be some p- potential there. Another potential way of building support for um, I, I would suggest two other ways that this might happen um, in actual form. Um, the first way is that members. Members usually do better closer to their, electorally speaking, closer to their home bases of support. Um, mm. Members, you know, started out as state legislators or uh, a mayor of a town. Um, and and, and ge- ge- geographic space matters, right? They've built support uh, and then they sort of expanded that support over time. So, you know, that they can um, help themselves by developing relationships with voters Um and expanding, right, continually expanding that district does not necessarily help them, right, in their goals. So mm-hmm. it is a trade-off for them, right, between sort of ease in, um, in the public, right, developing those relationships with the voters, um, getting their name out there, um, uh, removing the need to fundraise so much money, which is something that members don't like to do and takes a huge amount of time. So they have an easier job with voters, right, and building support in their district, but they would have less power in the House. So I think it's sort of an interesting question for members to consider um, once this yeah. sort of, you know, is there an opportunity there to, to, to rethink what that trade-off is? And maybe there'd be more folks than we would think that would actually prefer, um, because they don't have a lot of power in the House now. <laughs> So it's sort of constant complaints about the leadership, you know, running roughshod over um, a a sitting member. You know, maybe maybe 
some incumbents would consider making that switch mm. to have a, a, a safer, uh, more manageable relationship with their constituency in a smaller district uh, for uh, even less clout in uh, the House of Representatives. There is an additional upside from having smaller House districts, which is that doing so tends to instill just a little more backbone in individual legislators. It makes them more independent from party control, less reliant, for example, on the party leadership for fundraising in order to maintain their seat. If you think about the ways that a member can cultivate support, there aren't that many, right? They have the party. Uh, they, they can cultivate support with interest groups, right? Uh, many times national uh, interest groups. And then they have geography, right? They can, they can uh, credit claim. They can reach out to their district through targeted messages. Uh, they can provide constituent service, right, for, for voters who need help navigating government or have some other problem. Uh, they can bring back projects to the district, you, you, you know, use their, their, their uh, position on a committee, right, to sort of uh, uh, get favorable treatment for someone in their district. So there, there is a lot of sources or ways that a member can um, cultivate support. And I do think that in smaller districts, those non-ideological and nonpartisan mechanisms uh, are advantaged, right? They're going to be more effective You'll be able to to build an independent name for yourself in a better way if you have a smaller district and you can interact with voters when they see you at the grocery store, say, if we get really small, um, than if everything is always on TV, right? If no voters can actually know who you are or know anything about you other than your voting record uh, at the House or what the interest group says about you, um, well, then that's, that's the image that you have to craft, right? Um, and yeah. and you have to play nice with the party because the party is uh, helping you fundraise and the party connects you with those major donors and you need that money to run your campaign. Um, as well as, of course, the party holds all the keys to, to power um, and, uh, and, and might also control – Committee assignments. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Committee assignments, uh, um, you know, who gets, to, who gets to run for the Senate seat uh, and so on. So we've gone that route for a while. Right, that we've sort of allowed districts to get larger, the resources available for members to cultivate individual support um, is not particularly high right now. In fact, the incumbency advantage in Congress is almost gone. Right, so incumbent members mm-hmm. get almost nothing for being the incumbent. Oh, okay. They used huh. to, back in the seventies um, and eighties. They were they they had an additional seventy eight. Uh, uh, points on the two-party vote, right, in general, on average. And the most recent um, elections were were down to 1% to 2%. So they're getting almost no benefit from being an incumbent. And we could talk about whether that's good or bad, but, you know, I I think that's related to these trends. Districts are large. Everything is hyper-polarized and hyper-partisan. And Mm. that's, you know, those are going to have impacts on how members behave. So maybe yeah. allowing geography and local differences to ha- play a larger role will benefit uh, congressional representation. Let's just take a minute and imagine how different this election day could be if we'd already enacted these reforms. You know, let's say the airwaves, they feature many fewer negative ads since the candidates from all five major parties are worried about alienating potential second and third place voters. 
When you go and fill out your ballot, you can vote both strategically for the candidate or party you prefer, while also tactically giving your second or third place vote to the candidate that's more likely to win. And you actually know the people you're voting for. You leave the voting booth feeling good about yourself and confident that you've been part of a fair and representative process. The gap between how good that sounds and how you'll actually feel next week, it's a measure of how hard we all should be working to fix our broken system. Now, a quick note before I go, this is going to be the last regular episode of this iteration of Building Tomorrow. That's the bad news. But the good news is that we are revamping this podcast into a season-long show that really dives deep into topics. It'll look more like this episode, or our series on Silicon Valley, or the episode we did about how we can fix Social Security and all retire as millionaires. That's what's going to be coming down the pike in 2021, and I'll have more to say about that in two weeks. As always, until then, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.